Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Streaming Water Podcast. I'm your host, Blair Corning. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, today, we have a, a great episode. We have State Senator Cleve Simpson here to talk to us about uh, water and, and water supply and issues in the Rio Grande Basin. So uh, thanks for being here, Cleve. Great. Uh, thank you, Blair. It's uh, my pleasure. Always uh, um, uh, invigorating to talk to folks about water and water supply in this state. Great. Well, yeah, uh, Senator Simpson uh, serves. Uh, what what district or what what areas do you uh, represent, Senator? Well, today until the uh, redistricting commission gets through with it, I represent Senate District Thirty Five, which is um, the largest legislative district in the state. It's sixteen counties. It goes from the Continental Divide to the Kansas border, so it's really the San Luis Valley, the lower. Arkansas Valley, the Wet Mountain Valley, and the Southern Front Range. And it's dominated by uh, irrigated agriculture. That area holds a special place in my heart. I'm from Alamosa. I think the listeners, I've said that before. So San Luis Valley is, uh, is where I grew up as well. So I'm glad to, glad to have you on the show today. Can we start out? Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and, and what you do, and give us a little, a little uh, bio on yourself? Sure, Blair. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, I'm actually speaking to you today from Alamosa, which is my home. I was uh, born here in Alamosa. I grew up here on farm and ranch. Um, and coincidentally, I still own, I own my own irrigated farm today. So um, I'm the fourth generation of my family to farm and ranch in the San Luis Valley. I tell folks, I careful, you know, how I highlight that. If I'm given that, just making that description here locally in, in the Valley, I got to look around the room because that, that isn't any big deal to be the fourth generation here. There are multiple families here that are five, six, seven, eight generation uh, living and, and uh, farming and ranching here. So oh. yeah, grew up on a farm and ranch. Um, was lucky enough. I uh, got to go to school. I uh, got an engineering degree from the Colorado School of Mines um, a mining engineer. So I spent about 20 years working in surface coal mines in um, Texas. And, and uh, most recently, the, the last stint was was in Australia. So I got to spend a couple of years in Australia working in coal mines. But um, I'm married to my high school sweetheart. Um, she and her family, again, are multi-generational from here in the Valley. So um, in 2014, uh, we moved back home again and and settled down. Um, uh, you know, aging parents and grandparents. It was time to come home, and it it, it actually lined up. Um, I also got the opportunity to come to work for something called the Rio Grande Water Conservation District. Um, and in 2016, I was fortunate enough to become the general manager of the Rio Grande Water Conservation District. So, um, you know, I've been serving in that capacity since. 16 and it really kind of started to open my eyes to uh, you know the challenges the state of Colorado and really the western U.S. has when it comes to water and water supply and um, there was opportunity the you know the my predecessor at the senate was uh, Senator Larry Crowder who likewise happens to be from Alamosa um, and an acquaintance of mine uh, he was term limited, so I started thinking about, you know, 
the opportunity to serve serve my community in a greater capacity and knowing how uh, you know how important water discussions were going to be to this not just this basin not just the Rio Grande Basin but the entire state going forward and was really compelled to step up and try to represent rural Colorado um, you know with some some level of expertise about water and and ag and and those things that drive and support rural Colorado so. Um, ran uh, successfully, got elected last November, um, and got to serve my first uh, first term, first session uh, at the state capitol this this last year, which was an odd one, COVID-driven, um, strange session. But I didn't have anything to compare it to, so it was just fine from my perspective. So finished that up um, in early June, and uh, got to come home and start cutting hay and. and step back into the office here at the Rio Grande Water Conservation District and focus on the challenges that we have here. Good. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to uh, know that there are, our legislators are, are made up of, of people who actually deal with the issue. You know, you're farming, you got mining experience. I mean, you've got a lot of perspectives, so I'm sure that's that comes in handy when, when you're voting on issues on water. I, I, I hope so. I really feel compelled. I, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure within the Senate, I'm, I might be the only senator that actually owns a water right. I, um, there are a couple on the Eastern Plains that might have a water right for like stock water, but um, that actually use water for irrigation in productive agriculture. <laughs> I might be, I might be the only one in and maybe one of only less than five in the whole hundred seat legislator legislature. So I'm really compelled to step up and be that, that voice for, uh, you know, rural Colorado and agriculture and water. Good. Yeah. What do you do Cleve when, when you're not uh, working or, or at the Capitol or farming? What are your, what are your hobbies? Yeah. My wife and I, we, we certainly like to go camping and, and fishing. Um, she has like a, a classic 1963 Shasta, you know, trailer that we drag around when we can and, and go camping. Um, my real passion and hobby centers around hot rods, though. I have a 1957 Chevy Cameo pickup that's uh, my pride and joy. It was my dad's, um, and he gave it, you know, he turned it over to me when I turned 16. And so it's just this little treasure this gem we've had in the family for a long time and uh, I, I certainly love going to car shows and drag races and uh, I, I, I like that that would that would probably uh, consume most of my time if I wasn't actually working someplace so yeah do they still do the uh, early iron festival down there they used to have that big car show yep they do they uh, had to of course postpone it last year so their big 40-year celebration is would have been last year is now this year. And uh, I feel pretty proud. I, I, my, my truck was in that show um, and won the, the, you know, the war, the big award for the show is the Rodder's choice. And so I won that in 2013 and have been the only local, local recipient of that award. And so anyway, fun. Well, yeah. Fun times. That's a big deal here in, in Alamosa. Yeah. Labor Day weekend. Well, congratulations on the, uh... On the win there. Yeah, thanks, Blair. <laughs> All right, now it's time for uh, the interesting question. 
what sport could you play the longest in a televised game without anyone discovering that you don't belong there? Yeah, that's an interesting proposal. I, <laughs> no, I'd like to think 10 years ago, I, I would have said basketball. I played uh, basketball here in high school and in college. I was an all-state basketball player, Colorado all-state basketball player in 1979 and played in college and I continued to play for a long time. But I guarantee you uh, that would um, – knees have caught up with me. If I were trying to do that today, it would be pretty obvious pretty quick. So I'd have to go with something like, like cornhole probably uh, – I could probably last the longest before somebody realized I really probably didn't belong there. So horseshoes or something to that effect. Yeah. That's what I was thinking that too. When I was trying to, to think of an answer, I was thinking maybe cornhole. I could, I could blend in until I threw a beanbag and they'd be like, no, good. All right. Well, let's get on to the, uh, the more serious uh, questions in our show. Not too serious, but more serious than that. You said you work in, you know, you're, represent the Rio Grande Basin, you work in the Rio Grande Basin, and you're the GM of, of the Rio Grande Water Conservation District. What uh, issues rise to the top regarding water use and supply in the Rio Grande Basin? Wow, that's a, a loaded question. This, um, you know, you being from Alamosa, you would have an appreciation, Blair, but um, this basin, particularly Alamosa, uh, really is the, the, the one spot in the state with the least amount of precipitation. This is a, a high mountain desert. So we get on average about seven inches of precipitation a year is all. But it's, you know, it's an amazing agricultural epicenter for, for Colorado. There's about 500,000 irrigated acres in this valley. And we raise potatoes and barley and alfalfa. Um, you know, we raised spinach and lettuce and carrots and uh it's historically been you know a really productive place as a matter of fact that you know the culture the economies and all of these communities in the in the basin in the San Luis Valley were really developed around around irrigated agriculture problem is we're uh, our demand is exceeding our supply um you know we rely on surface flow, traditional surface flows like everybody else does off the Rio Grande River and the Canaeus River and Swatch Creek and their number of tributaries all, all around the valley that, you know, provide water to these irrigated acres. Um, and that was really the, the only supply from, uh, we, matter of fact, the oldest water right in the state is here in the San Luis Valley in the People's Ditch over in um, San Luis in Costilla County. That was decreed in 1852, I think. Um, but generally, in this basin, by 1900, all of the surface water diversions were appropriated and, and highly regarded as over-appropriated. You know, people had made more applications and were granted rights on more water than it, than routinely existed here. So, um, the the character so short on water on surface water. And that's all, you know, a function of how much snowpack we get in the San Juan mountains and the Sangre de Cristos. <laughs> it's really this dichotomy to go. If you live here in Alamosa, we get less than seven inches of precipitation, really the driest spot in the state of Colorado. But within a hundred miles, 
in the San Juan Mountains routinely are places that have record snowfall and some of the highest precipitation in the state. So, you know, we rely on that, that snowpack to, to feed those rivers and streams. But again, being over-appropriated by 1900, um, we have this really unique underground aquifer system here in the San Luis Valley. It's really comprised of two different distinguished, dis distinctively different aquifers, a shallow unconfined aquifer and a deeper confined aquifer that, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, much like other places in Colorado, particularly the South Platte, in the 50s and 60s, you know, had that build out of an electrical distribution system here, plus the, you know, with the invent of vertical turbine pump technology, we started tapping into the to our aquifer system to reply, you know, to, to rely on a supplement, in some instances, a supplemental source of water to finish out crops when that surface water was extinguished. And in too many cases, we rely on it completely for a crop. So the, the general sense here and confirmation by the Colorado Supreme Court is there is no unappropriated water left in this basin, both in our aquifer systems and the surface water system. So the challenge has been with declining supplies really since 2002, which was the worst drought in our recorded history in, in this basin. And I think likewise in Colorado, we've just been on this trajectory of really 20 years of diminishing declining supplies and really challenged to figure out how do you, you know, how do you correct the imbalance? Cause we've, we've, you know, over tapped our, our aquifer systems. And uh, uh, that's what this district, the Grand Water Conservation District and all my constituents really focus on is trying to bring us back into some sort of, some sort of balance. That's yeah. without a doubt that, that, and I don't, I don't want to spend an exhaustive time talking about this basin routinely is the um, subject or target of water export where um, again, with the growing population and economies really along the front range, the demand for water there continues to increase. And about every decade since 1970, there's another project or proposal or submittal to come here to the, to the San Luis Valley. And every one of them so far have been to drill wells into our, our aquifer system, in particular the confined, the deeper confined aquifer system and pump water out of the aquifer and pipe it and pipe it uh, north uh, either into the South Platte Basin or the Arkansas Basin and somehow get it where it's marketable on the front range. And we were going through that, that again with a very public proposal about doing exactly what I described, drilling wells into our confined aquifer and pumping water out of here, drying up agriculture, productive agriculture. So, those two things, and they just, you know, they're, they're uh, compounding challenges for, for the community here about dwindling supplies, higher costs, you know, margins in, in agriculture continue to be pretty slim at best. And then couple that with, you know, proponents uh, flashing money about buying, buying water rights and selling them and marketing them on the front range makes life here um, Pretty interesting on a daily basis. Yeah, I could uh, I could imagine. I remember that same issue when when I was there, and that was 30, 30 years ago. You know, of uh, 
It's the exact same deal. So, yeah, yeah. that was uh, American Water Development Incorporated. AWDI was really the biggest proposal, but truly the first ones were in 1970 to drill wells. This was to <laughs> pump water east, though, over La Vida Pass. And the intent back then was actually to use it to slurry um, coal from Colorado to Texas. And we were successful in beating that one. And again, like I said, about every decade, there's a, another proposal. And the community really does kind of really does uh, come together and um, work exhaustively to make sure that those things don't become a reality and have been been successful in, in opposing those and getting them shut down for the last 50 or 60 years or so. But they all get uh, a little more sophisticated every time and uh, challenges, you know, are, are ever increasing to try to uh, protect and keep our water here in, in the valley. Yeah, that's good. Sounds like people center around hot rods or uh, water, water issues. So they do. <laughs> that's good. Well, you kind of touched on this, Cleve, but uh, how does water management in, in the Rio Grande Basin differ from water management in more urban areas? A lot of the issues you described remind me of what they're going through in, in Douglas County and South Denver of trying to, to replace their their deep wells with, with renewable supplies. But how, how does... How's it differ from urban to rural and how do you, how's the relationship between urban and rural in, in your world? Yeah, what I, you know, I, in some respects that trying to manage water, whether you're in an urban setting or a rural setting, it really almost boils down to, I don't want to oversimplify it, but trying to live within your means and getting, you know, your demands to um, at least be on par with supply or hopefully a little less than the supply so you can build some reserve. Um, we have a unique opportunity here. And again, in this basin, easily 95% of the water consumption here is around agriculture. So um, the challenges are a little different, you know, urban to rural because we're just so focused on, on ag. But we are here in this basin working under, you know, what, arguably is um, cutting edge kind of um, attempts to, to be self-governing and manage this imbalance ourselves without the heavy hand of the state of Colorado stepping in. And, um, and we do that through something called sub-districts of the Rio Grande Water Conservation Districts where different geographic locations in the valley, communities of interest have come together um, and this is really about managing our aquifer systems and um, recognizing that the connectivity between groundwater and surface water and uh, honoring the prior appropriation system where those surface water rights are very senior to these uh, groundwater rights and pumping water out of the ground here does have an impact on, on those surface, surface flows. So... Uh, we've created these communities of interest to come together and um, for the most part, you know, producers, farmers have come together to voluntarily assess themselves some fees to raise money, to you know, establish programs, to really do two things. They're, they're working to create and maintain sustainable aquifer systems here, which I got, I got to put a plug in for 
you know, our aquifer systems here are vastly different than um, a lot of the designated basins in the state, in, include, including like the Ogallala Aquifer, where routinely those places are managing those groundwater supplies for really for extinction. Can you make them last 100 years? Our basin and our two aquifer systems that we talk about are very manageable. They respond really well to less pumping and more recharge. They, they, you know, they recharge themselves and or we recharge them um, very intentionally every year. So, and it's easy to, we, we, we gauge the, you know, the response of those aquifers on a monthly basis for decades now. So those communities of interest have come together to assess themselves, to raise money, to promote programs, to create and maintain sustainable aquifer systems, and then to also remedy or mitigate the injury that those groundwater withdrawals have on senior surface water systems. So, you know, we're about one of these sub-districts of the Rio Grande Water Conservation District is in its 10th year of operation. So routinely would get calls from people all across the United States, uh, particularly California, about how did you guys, you know, how did you get down, how, how did you start down this path? How did you actually get farmers to come together to agree to this, you know, I don't want to call it an experiment because this is something we, we have to be successful at. You know, an experiment would imply that you might fail, but we can't fail. We've, we've got to work hard to, again, build, build back that aquifer system that's been depleted because of, you know, excessive demand over the last 20 years in particular. So it's a, it's a interesting endeavor again, to bring community support together um, to really try to fix and manage our own internal problems of, again, uh, excessive pumping in this instance um, have really impacted our aquifer systems. We, we can't do a whole lot about that lack of surface water supply that's really lack of snow in the San Juans and the Sangres over the last 20 years. Other than, you, you know, these communities and the economies have to figure out how to potentially diversify a little bit. So uh, I can see the writing on the wall that, you know, we can't be so heavily dependent on irrigated agriculture going forward. Now unless a routine said, you know, we, we, we're doing this at about 8,000 foot of elevation. Um, we are subject to a killing frost every month of the year. We've had killing frosts in July here. So we don't have a whole lot of crops to pick from, but routinely looking for other crops that are maybe less water consumptive that will help us with that imbalance. There's always, you know, efforts around uh, improving irrigation efficiencies to incrementally gain on that uh, effort as well. But um, some of these sub-districts in the district have really, you know, highlighted the need and the necessity to have uh, less irrigated acres here. And I think that's a, that's a reality we're trying to face just to keep the rest of the system alive and healthy and, and whole. So we, we, we've certainly have participated in programs with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to, to follow, you know, productive irrigated, uh, particularly groundwater irrigated fields in the valley. So lots, lots of work to do still. Yeah. And Mother Nature has not been very cooperative the last 20 years. 
Yeah, I don't know if that's going to get any better or going to get worse. I don't know with the the heat wave and everything going on now. But I, I think it's great that you. It sounds like you have a kind of a model for you know proactively solving issues before they're unsolvable or before someone has to come in and and do something which isn't good for for anyone. I mean, so it's it's great that you're you're solving your own issues on a local level with the people who, who are participating in it. I think that's a great model. Yeah, we're working on it. We, we haven't quite figured the puzzle out completely, but we're dedicated to, to making sure it does work. Good. Well, this is, this is a big question here. And I know uh, everyone in the state, there's groups talking about this. So this is a hard one here, but what's, what's do you think is the key to achieving a uh, successful future for water in the Rio Grande or, or any other basin in Colorado? And I realize that's a big question, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a big loaded question. And <laughs> the politician in me will probably, um, I, I mean, I know it's cliche, but the, the solution is to continue to work together and try to recognize, you know, other folks' perspectives. Um, you know, to the point you kind of referenced that there's no reason to think that the next 20 years here in the basin are going to be any different or certainly not any better than the last 20 years, which means the pressure is going to continue to build, that we've got to continue to collaborate with, you know, with, within our basin, within the Rio Grande Basin, there's recreational needs, municipal needs, but not like, you know, the pressure on the front range. And recreational needs and ag needs and we're doing all this in this you know in this paradigm of dwindling water supplies we're all going to have to continue to sit down talk and work at finding solutions that there's not a perfect solution going forward where all of us are going to be able to continue or routinely people talk about the way it used to be here and i i grew up here i know what it used to look like here I know when there was water, an abundant supply of water here. The reality is we we've got to face up to the reality that that doesn't exist. So how do you, you know, how do you manage this forward to keep your communities whole, not destroy entire communities or industries, and and basically live within your means? And I, there's no clear answer, Blair. It's really about collaboration and working together. And you know, we have this unique set up across every basin and round tables where there's a, there's a chance to engage and talk about this on a routine basis. And this basin is really good at doing that. And I know those same efforts exist around the rest of the state as well. Good. All right. Well, I think we're at our, our mid show segment now. And this has nothing to do with the Rio Grande and, uh, only a little bit to do with Colorado, but I thought it was interesting. I found this uh, article from NPR by Jacqueline Diaz, and it's called Oversized Goldfish Are Taking Over One Minnesota Lake, Causing Issues for Local Fish. So I'll just read a little bit of it here. Uh, Pesky oversized goldfish are causing problems in Minnesota. Authorities in Burnsville, Minnesota have urged residents and owners of pet goldfish not to dispose of the family pets in lakes and ponds. The city tweeted a warning that doing so has resulted in the takeover of one local lake by overgrown goldfish. They grow bigger than you think and contribute to poor water quality by mucking up the bottom sediments and uprooting plants. 
this isn't the first time Minnesota lakes have become overrun with oversized goldfish. Last November, wildlife officials found thousands of goldfish swimming in Big Woods Lake uh, in suburban Minneapolis. A team had to remove a truckload of 500,000 of the goldfish due to environmental issues caused by the fish. The problem has also cropped up in Boulder, Colorado and Lake Tahoe, Nevada, where researchers found thousands of goldfish in local lakes in both areas years ago. Uh, goldfish are considered an invasive species that uproot underwater plants and compete with native fish for food and shelter. Speedy reproducers, the fish live 25 years and are a real pain to remove, according to Carver County, Minnesota officials. So I guess uh, I'm surprised that 25 years, I buy them from the, the store and they last about two weeks. So I don't know how they get to 25 years, but I guess they... You got to feed them, Blair. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what I'm doing wrong. But uh, yeah, so don't, uh, if you if you get tired of your, you're not willing to have a long-term relationship with your goldfish, don't, uh, don't dump it in the pond, I guess, is the moral of that story. Yeah, they referenced Boulder. I, I hadn't, you know, I had heard generally, didn't they reference in the story you just read that Boulder had an issue with them as well? Yeah, yeah, I, was, I should look into that more. That. I didn't either. I, I'm going to have to find out where that was and, uh, and what that was about because I was surprised at that too. All right. Well, uh, back on topic. I know the legislative session has, has wrapped for this year, but uh, were there any water related issues from that legislative session that you can tell us about that, that you were involved in or, or, or of interest? Yeah. Yeah, Blair, there were, there were a few of them and it was kind of a unique um, set of circumstances when, you know, when I, when I was elected in November, the thought was, you know, the state had just gone through the last session cutting about three, a little over $3 billion out of the bud, out of the state's budget. And it was a recognition or a thought that that was going to have to continue. We likely were going to have to trim another billion dollars out of the budget because of the coronavirus impacts. And actually the alternative ended up being the case. The state really generated more revenue from sales tax and income tax than what budget had predicted. So look, it created a unique set of circumstances for, for me in particular, not having to, you know, work and find ways in, to support the JBC and cutting more expenses, but actually created a little stimulus dollars that um, was very fortunate enough to, you know, participate either a prime sponsor or a co-prime sponsor on several of them. House Bill 1260 was $20 million to support the state water plan. Um, so 15 of that is available through the state's already established water water plan grant program. Um, it was unique that though we did under the current, the, the prior existing uh, grant program, grant ap applicants had to you know, cost share 50% of the, the grant. Um, we included language that said the, CW, the Colorado Water Conservation Board, CWCB board, could lower that standard to 25% to get more people access to that. Uh, it was 15 of that $20 million. And the other 5 million went to something called the Water Supply Reserve Fund, which is what really money trickles down and flows to the basin round table. So that, that's a win. Those funds are usually, uh, that those revenues are usually funded by severance taxes, which were really, um, non-existent for the, the last session. So that was that was a good one. Um, Senate Bill 240 was a watershed restoration grant program. 
again, likewise, that was an opportunity to fund an existing grant program. We got $30 million to include in there. And, you know, it was, uh, it's not intentionally written for, but it was, you know, about trying to support watershed restoration, particularly for the Cameron Peak and the East Troublesome Fire. Um, two huge fires and recognize, I think the identified need is easily a hundred million dollars. So huge, huge challenges um, for those communities that rely on those watersheds, either for ag or municipal purposes. And um, I think we're seeing some of that. I know, you know, um, Western Colorado, you see I-70 closed <laughs> on a routine basis, you know, as a result of, you know, soil instability and challenges with mudslides as a result of their fires last year as well. Um, the, the last one really kind of was, is interesting. It's a uh, house bill 1268. It's about studying emerging technologies for water management. So this was a, a collaborative effort. The state was willing to put forward some dollars if uh, CU and um, the water center at CSU could, could match those dollars and we would develop some pilot projects around Again, studying emerging tech, emerging technologies, and that that some of this stuff we do in the basin already. But pressure transducers in wells that provide continuous groundwater level monitoring. There are telemetry systems and measuring diversions in our basin again on routine that are uploaded that are available to the general public to see what's the flow of the river and at Del Norte, what's the Empire Canal taken out today or you know on a continuous basis, but. It goes so, you know, it'll, it has a potential to go even farther in this basin. We were successful in um, acquiring and installing a, a Doppler radar unit that this was really about initially about water management and that Doppler radar unit in conjunction with some software wharf hydro technology. We had the ability to track accumulations of snow over the course of the entire winter by basin and by sub-basin and then through a routine use that Doppler radar data to do a better a more accurate prediction of what we think stream flow is going to be and particularly for us in the Canaeus River and in the Rio Grande River because um, annual flows in those two rivers have a compact obligation that have a daily uh, influence on on water users here we you know we have to do something Colorado River is on the verge of doing, and it's about compact administration. And we've been doing this for a long time here, but on a daily basis, there's a portion of the flow of the Rio Grande um, that's not available to be diverted because you got to shepherd it down the system and get it to the state line to live up to compact obligations. So it's crucially important to have a reasonably good estimate of what you think the, the flow of the Rio Grande is going to be in this water season. So. Emerging technologies, I, I look forward to working with the folks at CU and CSU about you know, how their thoughts and ideas and what they can come up with. It, again, helps us better manage, a, again, a, de a declining resource, that, that water supply, that snowpack in the, in the mountains every year, and our groundwater system, too. So. Yeah, that's interesting. It, uh, it kind of parallels what, what I'm seeing in the, the wastewater and water treatment business as far as technology advances and data collection being used to to manage treatment systems and and it's amazing how how far we've come and, and how 
you know, how far we can go still with, with leveraging technology to solve some of these issues. Yep. You mentioned earlier you, you, your work with the, the Colorado Water Conservation Board, and I know you serve on the, the Interbasin Compact Committee. Can you talk a little bit about, about your involvement in, in those groups and, and what they do? Sure, Blair, yeah. So the roundtables, again, it's part of the Water for 21st Century Act. Um, Russ George was really um, kind of spearheaded that back in, I don't know, 2006 or seven, somewhere in that time frame that really set up these um, basin roundtables and the basin roundtables feed this interbasin compact committee, IBCC. And then that is a, you know, a subset of the CWCB, lots of acronyms, but um, have been part of the Rio Grande Basin Roundtable for since 2014. So it's just this amazing um, opportunity again for a variety of, you know, stakeholders, uh, municipalities participate, farmers, recreationalists, environmentalists. Um, I've, I've not attended enough. Well, I did attend Metro Basin Roundtable last year, but Outside of that, I've only been to the Rio Grande Basin Roundtable meetings, and it's remarkable the level of sophistication and interaction and collaboration that exists here. Again, given all the pressures that are on our system for dwindling supply and really generally increasing demand, um, it's invigorating and rewarding to sit in some of those meetings and, and recognize how People can come together and always agree. Absolutely, we don't we don't always agree, but you know the level of our dignity and respect that we all share for each other and work diligently to try to find solutions that you know are palatable and and uh, help move us in a you know in a more stable direction. So the IBCC was um, and actually Blair, I stepped down from that when I um, became a senator. So. I'm not the uh, Rio Grande representative to the IBCC, but I hope to be the legislative. There is a seat reserved on the IBCC for a legislator. Um, the Senate Ag Committee chair gets to make that appointment and it's usually that person, but I've, I've made the pitch to the chair to go, <laughs> how about considering uh, letting me, I know we're different parties, but again, water routinely loses some of that politics of Republican and Democrat. And, routinely ends up urban versus uh, rural or east slope versus west slope but um, that that's been the real opportunity for me to be exposed to you know the challenges across the state um, initially my first few years on on the IBCC were, was really about how do you find a mechanism to fund and support the state water plan you know, the identified gap is about $100 million a year for, for the next 20 years. <laughs> and so where do you find a, you know, a dependable, reliable revenue stream to really help support the Colorado Water Plan? So out of that is where we it, it got a little, um, other entities got involved late in the game and really took the, the lead in finishing this off. But that's really where we ended up with the proposition DD last year, two years ago, where sports gambling, a portion of sports online sports gambling proceeds is, is there to support the Colorado water plan. So, 
And then more recently, it's really been focused on, IBCC was really focused on its role in the conversations unfolding in the Colorado River system, Colorado River system about demand management and about, you know, how do you, how do you prepare yourself? Is there interest in, you know, being more proactive and doing things that put the state in a better position and hopefully avoid compact administration on the Colorado River. So at those discussions continue to unfold and are, you know, interesting and challenging everywhere I go in the Rio Grande Basin and now in the Arkansas, I remind people, pay attention to what happens on the Colorado River system because it's going to, the impacts are far reaching and will touch, I think will touch everybody in this state how, you know, how the circumstances unfold on the Colorado River. And if we end, in a, in, end up in compact administration mode on, on the Colorado River, it's going to you know, have broad-reaching impacts on everybody. And, yeah. and I, I, I just finished by saying my, you know, my motivation um, to run for Senate was I, COVID changed this a little bit, but how this state deals with water challenges, particularly increasing demands <laughs> coupled with declining supplies is going to be paramount to what the state of Colorado looks like going forward. The, I mean, you can see a fundamental change in Colorado and I'm talking about rural Colorado is at risk of not existing like it has for the last hundred years based on, again, this increasing demand for water and lack of supply. Yeah. We've got to more thoughtful, engaged, and and find um, those alternatives that can keep a, a vibrant, rigorous rural Colorado still in place. Because I continue to highlight it, you know, urban Colorado needs rural Colorado, and rural Colorado needs urban Colorado as well. We we got to really try to work to close those divides. So, the balance of bridges and the IBCC is one of those places to work on that. Well, thanks. This is a uh, this is our last question here before the big quiz, but uh, it's another big loaded question for you. But with all your your experience, with your perspective, what are the, what's the most surprising things that you've learned about water over your career, your lifetime? That's probably I know it's a loaded question, but it's an easy answer, and that it's so complicated. Right? I mean, you, you can narrow it down to that you know it's. It's supply and demand, but the nuances around water, every basin is is unique by far. I because I live in the Rio Grande, I don't know if that I had an appreciation for all the uniqueness and the and the nuances involved here. Whether it's compact administration, whether it's the interaction between groundwater and surface water, whether it's in-stream flows that you know a, a decreed right that you know didn't exist when I was a kid, but certainly are there now. And the, again, the, the recognition of the growing need for both recreational use of water, environmental use of water. I mean, I, I grew up in ag, so I kind of thought that was where it all went and what it was all used for. But layer again, compact. And here in this basin, we have this really <laughs> um, bit of a lightning rod federal project, a closed basin project. It's just another piece of the puzzle, but uh, weather modification, we don't do it here, but other folks are doing, it's just such a, a nuanced conversation. And to talk to people that have, you know, 
lived in and breathed this stuff for 40 years, they still learn things, you know, almost daily. So that's probably been you know, biggest surprise is how much room there is to learn and, and, and grow when it comes to water knowledge and, and water law in, in this state. So that's, yeah. that's invigorating. Good. Yeah. The devil is uh, in the details, I think, on a lot of the, a lot of these water issues and, and complexities, but yeah, that's great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here this morning and thanks for providing your, your insights and perspectives. It's been great, been great to learn and, and, and hear what's going on in, in the Rio Grande Basin. So thanks Senator Simpson. My pleasure, Blair. Uh, really anytime. Are you uh, ready for the quiz now? I've been studying, so yeah. <laughs> All right. This one, uh, the first one, you, you spend time at the state capitol, so you might, you might know this, but the interior walls of the cap state Colorado Capitol building are made from what type of rare marble? Is it A, Pacific gray marble, B, Sequoia brown marble, C, Beulah red marble, or D, Beetle Kill pine? Beulah red marble. Oh, you got it. You got it. Right. One for one. We got three questions here. Uh, we had a little bit on goldfish. What is a group of goldfish called? Is it A, a troubling, B, a quiver, C, a bloat, or D, a murder? What is a group of goldfish called? No idea. A bloat, I guess. A I'm sorry. That is incorrect. It is a troubling a group of goldfish is called a trouble. Yes, I uh, yeah, I just I a learned bloat. that also. A bloat, a bloat is aptly uh, hippopotami, hippopotamuses. I don't, I'm not used to saying hippopotami. The bloat of hippos. Yep, right. All right, well, you can uh, go two for three here if you get this last one. Uh, Rio Bravo is what the Rio Grande is known as in Mexico. Who starred in the 1959 Western Rio Bravo? Was it A, Henry Fonda, B, John Wayne, C, Gary Cooper, or D, Chuck Connors? John Wayne. John Wayne is correct. You are two for three, Senator Simpson. Congratulations. Ooh, uh, that was tough. Yeah, that was, that was a tough one there. All right. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for participating and thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate your time. I know your, uh, your time's valuable. It sounds like you got a lot of a lot of activities going on, so I appreciate you taking uh, some time out of your day to talk to us and the listeners. Uh, so thanks a lot. My pleasure, Blair. Anytime. Appreciate it. And to our sponsors, uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Colorado Wastewater Utility Council and the Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, to the listeners, if you like the show, give us a, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player you're listening on. And if you have thoughts uh, about this show or ideas for future shows, you can always get in touch uh, with me at streamingwater at mail.com. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Streaming Water Podcast.